Hey there, Conquerors, and welcome to episode 89 of Conquering Columbus. This week, we sat down with Chris Sense, and Chris has a great entrepreneurial story, and his team at F13 Works is currently working out of the Rev1 offices, and uh, we talk a lot about e-commerce in this episode and where F13 Works is heading. Hopefully, you guys all enjoy this episode and learn a lot. Before we get to that interview, though, I want to ask you all for a quick favor. If you haven't already, pick up your phone and hit that subscribe button on whatever podcast app you're listening on. It really helps support our show, and it'll make sure you never miss a single episode of Conquering Columbus. We also want to take a moment to thank some of our supporters. Conquering Columbus is brought to you in part by the Sundown Group. The Sundown Group is an Ohio-based nonprofit that helps connect entrepreneurs to investors, mentors, talent, and capital through business pitch events, workshops, and classes offered throughout the state. And for more information, head on over to sundownfirst.org. And our last sponsor is Facilities Management Express, or FMX for short. FMX is actually founded and headquartered here in Columbus, Ohio. They're a startup software company. What's really cool about them is a lot of competitors in this space, but they made a name for themselves by designing an easy-to-use and tailored-fit facilities maintenance and management software. They serve industries ranging from churches and schools to property management, manufacturing, and fast casual restaurants. You can learn more or check out a free trial at GoFMX.com. Mike here again. Do you want to be a sponsor of Conquering Columbus? We are looking for some new supporters to help keep the show going in 2018. To inquire about how you can help support the podcast, please send an email to mike at conqueringcolumbus.com. All right, Conquerors, let's get the show on the road. You could drop me anywhere on the planet in any environment, and I might get you know my head kicked in in the beginning, but I'll find a way to survive. I'll find a way to get the job done. Yeah, there's a little doubt, but you know what? Once again, I think of that guy in my ear. I think about stepping up to the stage. I think about the challenge. Like, I've lost sometimes, but I've won more than I've lost. And so, like, I bet on me any day. Choosing greatness. Greatness doesn't choose you. You know, you have to choose it. And, you know, it's hard. I think there was a hunger in me. There was a desire just to make a difference. There was a desire to not just be status quo, a desire to not be average. This is Conquering Columbus. Hey there, Conquerors, and welcome to another episode of Conquering Columbus. Uh, Today on the show, we have Chris Sense, and Chris is the CEO and co-founder of F13 Works, a company designed to help bridge the gap between manufacturers and e-commerce. And Chris has a lot of experience in the marketing e-commerce space, and he graduated from Miami of Ohio with a degree in marketing. And welcome to Conquering Columbus, Chris. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we're really excited to have you on the show today. So uh, one of the first places we like to start is kind of taking it back a little bit, talk a little bit about your family, childhood, growing up, and you know, going to Miami of Ohio and kind of your career before F13. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, I grew up here in Columbus. Went to Columbus Academy. I'm the oldest of three. And my family, you know, I, I was probably born to be an entrepreneur, maybe, maybe not bred to be one, but my mother had her own law practice. And my father was a successful insurance salesperson who late in his career went from selling for a large agency here in town and starting his own business. And you talk about someone 
changing their personality 100% from being really kind of stressed all the time and frustrated to this is happy guy with, you know, take this huge leap, take a huge sacrifice, but be truly happy and satisfied person. And then, so how did that kind of uh, evolution develop? Do you remember, were you too young to kind of recall that point in your life or? No, it happened when I was like 18. So I got to grow up with the other dad. Uh, he was awesome. He was a driven dad. Uh, but to see him change was was fantastic. And uh, it was it was quite a leap for him. You know, he had to sacrifice quite a bit. But the the change in his life and his lifestyle and his attitude, uh, giving up kind of what he had known for almost his entire life to that point, uh, career-wise, to, to start his own business. And now he's been running it for 15 years. Uh, and, and very successful, tons of happy clients. So it was awesome to see. And, and the, the mother always running her own business, she made that decision early on uh, to do so, so she could take care of her family and have control over her life. Uh, so, so both of them, you know, did it and, and were, were successful. And, uh, you know, my, my brother, sister, and I have all had varied paths, but I think in each of our minds, we're, we're independent and you know someday both of them will, will be doing something similar to me. What do they do right now? So my sister is uh, at Cross Checks. She's been there for, I want to say four or five years. Sorry, Katie, I don't know the exact date, uh, but she's very successful. You know, they've, they've been a, an evolving company and a real landmark company here in Columbus. And she's had quite an impact. I mean, she's done well. She is a cross checker through and through. So she really believes in the culture. And she's been with them since they were in the old Chase building. So she's seen a ton of change and uh, really worked through it. So it's, it's really neat. Uh, my brother's an MBA student at Ohio State. So he gave up a career with a large defense contract conglomerate. This is a giant company. Uh, he, he had a lot of success, moved around there through their management program, worked his way up, finally said, I need to do something different. So he's in the MBA program studying entrepreneurship. So you finished high school. At that point, did you know that eventually down the down the road you were going to also take your own entrepreneurial path, similar to what your dad was doing at the time, or were you just kind of like, I need to get to college, and then, and then I'll figure out what, what's going to happen from there? Yeah, no, it wasn't by design. It was very much an accident. Uh, I, I've i always been kind of a hustler. I couldn't say entrepreneur when I was a little kid, so I was just like, hey, I'm hustling for money and, and everything else. Uh, so I learned the stock market real early on. My dad's in finance, so it was real natural to understand the stock market and challenge him and understand what short selling is and what buying, what options are. So real early on, I was addicted to the point system of money. I couldn't tell you like, oh, I want to make $1,000 so I can go buy this thing. It was more like, I, I want to turn $100 into $500 just for the point system in the bank account. So I, I started playing around with stocks and, and having my dad buy stocks for me in probably fifth, sixth grade. Uh, got really into that. And um, and then was always trying to literally sell baseball cards, sell whatever it was to, to make, you know, a little money and, and not for any good purpose. It was more just to, to do it, you know. So getting to Miami, I actually started a business there. Not again, not trying to be an entrepreneur, but something fell on my plate and it ended up being very successful and giving me a huge leg up into what I'm doing today. It was an e-commerce business. I, I tripped and fell into it. Uh, I was selling products to my dorm mates offline. So I'd buy like crates of stuff, like a, a lot is what they're called, and have it shipped in from China, sell it to the dorm. Kid down the hall said, you have this great reputation on eBay. Why don't we sell stuff online through your account? I've got a connection. He had beauty products, and I started a beauty business. 
So how do you fall into being the dorm room Alibaba of the of the beauty industry? <laughs> like you just you just found these crates of beauty products. How did that all evolve? Yeah. So this one was much more legitimate than my my first business of like let me find something cheap that I can buy a ton of that people would probably buy from me. Uh, and this this uh, one of my best friends now at the time just a, a dorm mate. His father was a doctor and could buy beauty products through his medical license. And these aren't prescription, but you could only buy them in bulk through a medical or a spa license. And so he said, I'll, I'll have my dad turn over, you know, buy through his office and we can resell them online. And that's like the strangest thing to me. So what type of beauty products out there that only allowed to be bought by doctors or spas? Yeah. So keep in mind, this is early 2000s. So internet sales weren't really a thing that were considered in any of these contracts, which is probably a big loophole for us, but um, skin peels, and we're talking high-end stuff. So you go in and usually a spa would put on, you know, this nice uh, skin peel and they'd, they'd apply it for you and they'd charge three, $400. The skin peel itself cost us maybe 30 and we could flip this thing for 120. So to you who can only get it at the spa for you know, three, 400 bucks, it's an incredible deal. We have enough margin that we can't really mess up. Uh, there's lotions and moisturizing creams. There's anti-wrinkle creams, eye treatments. And it was stuff we were batting over our heads. I mean, you're talking to guys who, are, we have all right skin, but we're definitely not in that market. Uh, so it was a lot of research. How do we describe this? How is this described in a spa that attracts people? Let's mirror that, put it online. And, and you know, we found a couple of things that helped us stand out uh, against the competition that really accelerated the business. Yeah, and from there, so at this point, you're still at Miami, right? Mm-hmm. So after you graduated, can you take us through kind of where you went from there? Yeah, so I fell in love with marketing at Miami. I was a finance major. I thought that was really my path. And I, I had a Professor Heath, which is just this great marketing professor at Miami, changed my mind. It was just this amazing draw to marketing. Went to on a co-op program, lived in London for a summer, worked for Burger King's international campaign in the UK. And that really opened my eyes to this whole marketing thing. So I uh, left school and started working at an agency, sold my business about uh, 2008, so halfway through 2008. So it was about four years until we, we actually were acquired. And at the time, it, again, this was before the startup fad had really kicked into gear. You had the dot-com bust in the 90s, but... Nobody was doing startups, really. So we didn't consider it startup and an exit. We just thought, hey, we're moving on. You know, my, my co-founder went to med school, and I was working full-time, and most of my job was traveling. So, you know, it worked out. And, and then I had a more traditional career, really. So went on from an agency to work with Stanley Steamer for about three years. Uh, that was probably the coolest job I've ever had. They brought their online marketing in-house, and myself and Gavin Myers, who you guys might know from North High Brewing, uh, he was my manager actually. He hired me in, and so we had this amazing time. We had came into a place that had about twenty-five million dollars of online sales when we started. Two, three years later, we were doing well over one hundred and thirty million in online sales, and that was during the 2008, uh, 2009, 2010 contraction. You know, the the Great Recession or whatever they're calling it these days. So you saw business going one way and the online sales booming the exact opposite way. So it was really neat. And it was a crash course into having this huge budget and, and the keys of the castle. Nobody knew online marketing at the time, certainly not within Stanley Steamer. And, and really, larger stroke people didn't. So 
and we're working with Google and they're bringing us in and saying, okay, you guys are successful at this AdWords. What are you doing that others aren't? We're like, hey, I, I don't know, luck, maybe a little <laughs> bit more analytical skill than most, but it was cool. But again, I had this kind of cheat in that I'd been in the online environment marketing for, you know, at that time, five, six years, which nobody had. You know, we were competing with agencies who their budgets would either go to interns or they'd go to the creative team that was doing the national ad buys. So they'd be buying based on impressions like you'd buy national advertising. I can beat you all day if that's what I'm going up against. Yeah, and so can you talk us through like why, why were impressions slowly shifting away from, like impressions shifting value? Yeah. Yeah, so you know the way advertising traditionally worked is you'd go, and, and Stanley Steamer's majority of their advertising went to the national ad buy. And that's how most com competitors were for us. So when you're buying TV commercials, you want to pay as little bit of money to reach as large an audience as possible watching a TV show. That makes a lot of sense. When you're marketing online, especially with, with AdWords where it's you know, pay-per-click advertising, you want that ad to show to someone who's going to click and, and buy. So it's that return on ad spend. It's uh, you know, understanding what the lifetime value is of the different types of customers that you can attract through your different funnels. And if you can figure that out, and we had a company here in town we were using called uh, Clear Sailing, who was acquired maybe five, seven years ago, but they had attribution management, which was something that was unheard of at the time. So it could track clicks from you know, multiple sources all the way through for one person. So we could tell exactly what someone was doing. They were coming in off of a Google click, and then leaving and then coming back later through an email marketing campaign, we could say, okay, hey, they hit the top of the funnel here through a Google paid uh, campaign. Then we hit them with an email and they came back organically and they converted. So we could actually set up really efficient funnels. And we could actually tell if they were calling in and converting on a call. We were using call tracking numbers. So that really expanded you know, how much impact our site had. We could tell in a way almost nobody else could. At the time, most people were just saying, hey, I want to put up an ad and have as many people in the world see that ad as possible. That's not good because then your click-through rate goes down, so it costs you a lot more to show up higher in the results. So that has to do with Google's algorithm. Yeah, we actually had the co-founder or the founder of Clear Sailing on not too long ago, so it's a small world how that wraps around. Yeah, fantastic um, company. Yeah, he's a brilliant guy. Like, I think he's probably going to do it again here pretty soon with another company he's working on. So Very cool. Um, Kind of taken from that, though, the process evolved. You're at Stanley Steamer. What do the steps look like as you continue to progress and then eventually to starting F13? Absolutely. So I went back into the agency space for about four more years. I had tremendous experience with a bunch of large national and international clients. I really played a lot in the franchise world because I knew that quite a bit after the Steamer experience. Um, but then I had an opportunity. You know, I, I got married and I wanted to travel a little bit less agency world you're traveling two three weeks a month so really away from home so got married and decided to take a job here in town with an e-commerce company they were eight years old and they really needed a turnaround so they had tremendous growth through their, their first four or five years and then it kind of turned the opposite direction and they wanted me to come in and help them kind of right size the ship prepare them for an acquisition and it got me right back in e-commerce uh, and along the way i had a couple kind of side startup experiences where I got into you know, three other startups in, in different ways and had some successes and had some failures there. Um, but they were very much kind of part-time side gigs, um, so a side entrepreneur. 
And uh, when I got back in e-commerce, I it I got the bug again, and I remembered how much I loved it, and you know how great it was within digital marketing to have these instant wins. It's it's one thing when you're selling a service or selling somebody coming to a school and signing up for a tuition or a hospital. I mean, we, QSR clients, so people coming to restaurants and, and driving traffic. But it's so much easier if you come to a site and buy something. I can tell right away if I'm winning or losing marketing-wise. So it's it's kind of a exciting thing for a guy like me. Um, so when I was there, we found a couple opportunities. And, and one of those was we needed to sell products that we didn't currently have. And I looked at the Amazon model and how Amazon grew to be the, the beast that they are today in retail. And, and if you break that down, you see that the third-party marketplace is the largest part of Amazon. The revenue that they drive there is incredible. And the profit is there for Amazon. So Amazon makes profit in a couple of different centers and they obviously lose money a lot of different ways. People talk about them not being profit positive, but one of the big profitable areas is their third party marketplace. So they invite anyone to go out and sign up and sell products on Amazon to consumers, fulfill them themselves. So this model exists, it's existed forever. It's what helped Amazon grow to what they are today. We need to be able to apply this to our site is what I said. And the technology didn't exist to let us do that. We had to figure it out ourselves. It was hugely, hugely painful. I mean, just terrible. And I had a large dev team. So I said, this can't just be a problem for us. I started asking around, found it was a much larger problem than just our company. And, and that was really the, the light bulb moment. Hey, look, I can do this. And it's a lot bigger than just selling some apparel uh, on an annual basis and, and making tens of millions of dollars. I think this could be much larger than that. So if it was that painful, how did you eventually evolve it into a product that you could actually build a company around? Were you eventually obviously able to find a solution and create, you know, an API or a plugin on the back end for you guys? Or? Yep. Yeah, that's exactly it. So I had one of my developers who was with me. I hired him into that company. I was, you know, jamming away on this idea and asking around my network and, and extending my network, trying to talk to people in the industry who had products they wanted to sell into other sites and people who had retail sites that wanted to sell other people's products. And, and I, I said, hey, I have enough demand here that there's, there's something, but I need your help creating this. And, and Ryan Mahan is my co-founder. You know, he, we drew it out on a whiteboard one day and he said, I can do this, I can build this. I said, heck yeah, man, let's just do it. You know, quit your job. He had, he'd gone on to another job by that time. And you know, if, if you quit your job, I know I have this much money lined up. I actually had a check from a client uh, who said, hey, if you can do this for me, I'll pay you, you know, six months in advance of SaaS fees you know, to knock this out. I'll be your beta client, and you know, it worked. So, and following on that note, another part of the reason that's so successful for Amazon is because they have this huge network that you're plugging into. How does this work for some of the clients that you guys are working with? Are they also leveraging large networks, or are they just kind of working with whatever they have going on, and they're just kind of allowing others to plug into their site? Yeah, yeah. So we have we have kind of two sides. The one side is the product companies. So if you have a product, you want to get distribution. So you might throw your product onto Amazon. You might keep it on your own site. You might throw it on a couple other niche sites. You plug into us, and we give you distribution, and we leverage the e-commerce platform. So right now we just plug into Shopify. That gives us access to over six hundred fifty thousand stores. So there's stores from small mom and pops to large, you know, very large stores. Um, doing hundreds of millions of dollars a year. So it gives you a really wide breadth of stores that you can plug into. 
And then it's just about marketing a store. So we figured an offering of how do we connect the right products with the right stores. On the store side, it's extending your aisle. So the idea is you have your core products, you probably make them yourself or you have them warehoused somewhere um, in a facility that you own or you work with. It's really easy then to extend your aisle and anything you sell through our network is pure profit because it's drop shipped. So you never have to worry about the logistics, the inventory, paying for that product up front. You're literally paying for it only after it sells. So it's it's really a dream and it works for, for any website. I mean, the, the large websites and the large retail brands here in town are going to be doing this in the next five years. They don't know it yet. But they will be because this is the next big trend in commerce. If you look at Forrester, if you look at uh, Deloitte, if you look at all these large firms who are studying retail, they said this is the next key thing to be doing because you, you want your site to be more than just the products that you offer. You want it to be a place to come. So if I'm an express, you know, I sell my express clothes, but why not extend that aisle? Why not sell other stuff within that lifestyle that would, would impact your customers' lives in a positive way? You know, if I'm Victoria's Secret, why don't I sell swimwear? I might not be able to profitably sell it myself, but why not let someone else worry about the logistics and inventory? And there's all kinds of extending aisle uh, opportunities, and it's going to be a huge impact. So we're trying to get in early and, and get ahead of that wave. And what I'm curious about is how do you find the items that are going to extend your aisle without going too far off brand? So if I'm a Victoria's Secret, yeah, swimsuits might make sense, but I don't want to sell apples. Yep. Yep. That's, that's a great question. And that's something where, you know, as our data builds up, we're hoping to automate that. So we have a little bit of you know, magic juice on the back end where we're trying to do some recommendations. But that's something where we see not in 2018, you know, halfway through 2019 being really smart at because we have this amazing amount of data. We touch all our stores. We touch all these suppliers. You know, we have thousands of transactions going through our system on a daily basis. And it's all anonymous, but at, at some point, it's going to make sense for us to really deep dive into that and say, hey, this customer likes these things, and these suppliers and these stores should kind of know what these customers look like and are looking for. Um, for now, we trust that brands know themselves. So if I have a, a fashion store, I know that you know selling apples is probably not the best fit, right? <laughs> but you know, you, you know what that extension is. Maybe sunglasses is a fit, or maybe that's a little too far. Right, that makes a lot of sense. So uh, as you guys kind of continue to grow, when did you originally, so date-wise, when was F13 founded? We were founded in June of 2016. Okay, so we're closing in on two years here, and how have things changed over that time for you guys? We're not working on my basement anymore. Well, that's that's a big one. <laughs> Uh, it was a two-person team, so we started out lean and mean. Uh, you know, between our first client and myself, we were, we were really just bootstrapping it. Uh, we connected into Rev One pretty early on and got their advice. We started working with some of the mentors that are now my board members uh, pretty early on. Uh, I knew that I have limits, even with my startup experience, even with my traditional job experience. I hadn't done a full found a company and run it in this way. Uh, you know, the e-commerce business I ran in college was a college e-commerce business. So, you know, we had to fill ourselves and surround ourselves with much smarter people than us, guide us. And that's led us to, you know, slowly build our team. We took on some investments uh, last year. Uh, we moved into Rev1. We have our own office space. And it's been a slow kind of steady growth 
while the revenue builds much quicker than we do as a team, which is you know what we always want to be doing and focused on. What does the traction look like in the market? Are you guys gaining um, you know positive feedback from people that you're approaching with this, or is it taking time to kind of sell it on them? And are you do you guys feel like maybe you're ahead of the curve a little bit at this point? Or yeah, I, I think. I think there's early adopters who know exactly what we're doing. So there's some folks will go in, we'll sit down, we'll say, this is what we're doing. And they'll say, yep, I'm done. I'll sign whatever you say. Like, oh, wow, I should have added three zeros to that, you know, <laughs> the cost of it. Uh, and then there are a lot who just are like, what? Why would I do that? What, what does this mean? And they, they really need educated and they, they want to learn it. So it's still a very evolving market. We're probably picking off right now most of the folks who you know, really have an idea for this and, and have thought about doing it themselves and just haven't figured out how to do it yet. Um, so, uh, you know, the, the traction's going um, on, on both sides that way. The stores want this. So the retailers, for the most part, are the easiest sales in the world. Uh, they're the, the savvy ones are doing this in some way, shape, or form already. We just make it easier. So most of the retailers, and, and as a retailer myself, and having been on that side, you're desperate for this. Like if you can put products on your site, it's an easy play for the big guys, you know, the expresses and the VSs of the world. That's a harder thing because those are large companies. So they're not used to being super innovative, innovative for them is a pop-up shop, right? Like it's, it, it, they're not quite there, but, but for the hustlers who are, are just trying to, you know, add another million dollars this year or, or $10 million this year, this can easily lead there, you know? And, and that's a, that's an easy easy approach so the the store side the retailer side it's it's usually easier we don't have any huge foundational retailers we're working with right now that's something we hope to get into in the next year or so is find some big guys who really want to try this strategy out and and see how well it works for them but on the supplier side that's where it's a little slower coming you know these brands can you, can you talk a little bit more about the sparse? I think maybe I'm still having a hard time. Like if I'm if I'm in the sales process with your team and there's going to be two avenues, I'm going to be a retailer who wants to put my products on additional storefronts, website storefronts, mm -hmm. um, as many as I can get it on probably that will accept my brand with their product offerings. And then the other side is getting those storefronts to buy into the system. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. So we, we consider anyone who puts their products into our system a supplier. It's a brand. It's a product company. You know, they refer to themselves in a lot of different ways. The retailers are who we see as extending their aisle. So anyone who has a e-commerce presence and wants to put additional products on there that they don't have to fulfill themselves. Okay, and it's, get, it's easy to get them to buy in. It's harder to get more suppliers. Exactly, exactly. Putting your products into it. We've started to really find that ideal customer. A lot of distributors really like this. You know, if I am a distributor, I'm in charge of 10,000 SKUs or 20,000 SKUs, I'd say, oh my gosh, an avenue to, to burn through some of these SKUs, that's amazing. Yeah, why not? Yeah, right. so, so as we've gotten more traction from just marketing and, and people knowing who we are, we're getting more people contact us and saying, hey, I can drop all these SKUs into your system. Then for us, it's just about the due diligence. You know, we, we do have a responsibility. Are these the right products? Do they fulfill quickly? Where do they fulfill from? We're really focused on U.S.-based companies, North American-based companies, and next is Europe. So we've avoided a lot of the Asian companies, where, which is where a lot of the distributors are, who have just a ton of products. So curiosity, gotta gotta ask. You said you mentioned you work with a lot of European companies. The recent announcement from the EU 
is that the EU is no longer going to work trade agreements with anybody who isn't part of the Paris Climate Accord. Does that affect your guys' business at all? Yeah, so we haven't gotten into the Europe yet. Europe's next. Okay. We're in North America now. Um, as far as that goes, yeah, no, I, I actually thought that you know, the, the new political regime would, would be shutting down a lot of the outside trade. So we thought, oh, my gosh, we might be even set up further ahead than we thought we would be. Uh, but, you know, that hasn't happened, uh, you know, yet necessarily. But uh, but it, it's an interesting marketplace. We see a lot of folks, especially in the Shopify retail scene, who are importing products from China and just doing retail arbitrage. Mm-hmm. The big issue there is just you know, 30, 45-day delivery times and, and huge fraud. I mean, we work with some retailers who... We work with a company that they had 3,000 products that were sent out that were the wrong product during December last year. That's, that's a bad time. Pretty bad. So those are 3,000 <laughs> chargebacks. Right. That, that kills you. So you're talking credit card companies don't want to work with you anymore. You're talking that you know, you're getting all these fraudulent things. Your reputation's gone on Facebook and Google. And you're like, you guys did the best you could, but that hurts. Right. It hurts in a big way. Yeah, absolutely. That would hurt a lot. And and I guess what I'm curious about is, so how do you guys manage the logistics of the system, or is that something that's just done through the contracts and you know by the suppliers? Yeah, so that's one of the big things that we vet is we don't handle the logistics, but we need to make sure that any product company or brand who comes on and does fulfillment in our system has legitimate, strong, and scalable logistics in place. So if they sell... 50 products in a day or 5,000 products in a day. There are limits and we can control inventory and help them out with that, but that they can scale quickly because, you know, that'll happen. I mean, a product takes off well, you're going to sell a lot of those very quickly. How does the monetization structure work for you guys? Like, how are you pricing the suppliers versus the retailers? Do you guys have a good method and way that you know that you're capturing all that value there? Are you doing it based on like a transactional basis or... We're doing all of the above. So we, we're SaaS fees. So it is a monthly fee um, on both sides to use the platform. And then we do make a, a very small percent on the transactions. And the idea is just hopefully we'll have tremendous volume in transactions. How do you set your initial fees? Is it uh, just vary across the board depending on who you're talking to? Or is it kind of just like... We, we have pretty well-defined um, pricing. It depends on what we are doing for you. So within our software, there are a few levels of capabilities and then there are certain exclusivities that people want and will pay more for so being the only product company that offers this product within you know one of our apps that type of thing that people will pay a little bit more for but it's pretty uh, straightforward pricing definitely so kind of the next place I want to jump into and we'll kind of huge pivot from this pricing conversation yeah no doubt price is, elasticity and hey you know price, we'll start getting Josh will get real into with price elasticity he's taking those business courses over at uh well that school i don't want to talk about but i've learned just enough to say the jargon so i can right. sound moderately intelligent as long as they don't go too deep in the waters nice. but but i want to talk about your experience at rev one yeah so uh, you know talk a little bit about what it's been like to work at rev one work in the rev one offices is it motivating is it uh you know something that you would recommend to other people that are looking to really try and get involved in a startup or start their own companies yeah, yeah. I mean, Rev One's definitely very regimented in their approach to coming on board, and uh, you know, I, th- I think it's I think it's great the support that they give in the, in the community. I, I think for Columbus, there aren't a lot of spaces like Rev One here, and there are a couple more popping up with Idea Foundry, um, and in you know Dublin Entrepreneurial Center. But 
it is one of these spaces that just has so much stuff going on and there's serendipity there, right? You run into someone in the hall and you're frustrated because you can't find the specific type of developer you want. And they say, oh yeah, I actually know this guy and he's looking to leave his job and he works at this huge place and he's super talented. Yeah, okay, great. I, I guess I should talk to that. Um, so I, I love that. Um, and, and it's very sellable as far as bringing employees in and, and saying, hey, this is different than a desk job, you know, in a cubicle somewhere else. They just put a gym in, you have free coffee and tea, everything's kind of taken care of around the facility. So, you know, it's going to be clean and, and kept up well. So I love that. I, I love my uh, advisors there, MKP and uh, Dan Bruno. They've both been fantastic. They push and challenge us in a way that I really invite and, and I need. Because the worst thing you can do is have an idea as an entrepreneur, put it on a table and have everyone at that table say, that's great. You should do that. <laughs> they, they push me. It's great. Mm. And, you know, we had the, the board meeting today and prepping for that, you know, we were circulating a bunch of documents and budgets and all these things. And to be able to sit down with people and just be challenged at, at everything. Say, hey, you need to look at this. You, that's not right. Are you sure that you can do this or that or this is going to cost that? I find it refreshing because it, it just really sets you in a different state of mind. Yeah. And the reason I kind of laugh there is because we know a guy, and we talked about him earlier. His name's Alex Picasso. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we were talking a little bit about him before we started the podcast, but we call Alex the killer of dreams because Alex will poke holes in any idea you have. Yeah. And he's like, he's exactly what you're looking for when you want to bounce idea ideas off of someone because he'll just look at you and go, well, that's just stupid. And this is why. <laughs> the Beastmaster himself. Oh, the Beastmaster himself. <laughs> and if any of you guys watch Beastmaster out there and you saw a guy running around, what was it, like neon green tights? I missed miss the episode, but that would probably seem accurate. <laughs> so they, they don't stick out in my mind, which is a good thing. So. He's, he's on there. So take a look out for Alex Picasso. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I couldn't help but laugh because I, Alex will tear holes in any idea you have. This yeah. Problem, this problem is he's, like, very intelligent. He's a very good critical thinker. So, like, you take him with things and you're driving over there and you're like, I got, I'm going to make a million dollars this month, no doubt in my mind. And you leave and you're like, I'm... I don't. I owe him money right now. <laughs> like, I don't even know what's going on. He put me. I don't know what happened. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I love Alex. I I met him years ago. I was had this you know side startup, and he was working on his Facebook app that he had worked on at the time. And you know we were both kind of just jamming away at, at some event. And you know, right away, he's exactly like that. He's very serious, very straightforward, but really smart and good guy. So mm-hmm. yeah, I definitely love folks like that in Columbus. What's crazy about him is I didn't even know he had a Facebook app. Well, it kind of ties back. It's funny that you brought it up because it ties back into the whole rev. One thing that you were saying, like the fact that you'll run into somebody who knows a really good developer. Part of, from what I understand, the issue with that app was that he kind of got burned on the back end and a couple like development aspects just going to the wrong people. And had he been in an environment like that where you could meet trustworthy people, make connections in this fostering kind of incubator environment, it probably would have played out a lot better. I think I remember him telling me too, like three months after he had finally said. I've lost too much money on this. I'm gonna, I'm gonna move on. Um, he ended up finding out a company the exact same was like bought for like twenty million dollars, <laughs> and it's just one of those things where he's just like, and he just takes it like we don't need to talk about Alex Picasso for this whole episode, but he takes it like a champ too. He's just like, that's life. Now I'm moving on, and I'm yeah. like, dude, I would be depressed for like a month. Like, yeah. that would be so bad. But yeah, we it's funny because we we started at a real similar time and and had a very similar experience with that with that particular iteration of our entrepreneurial lives, our startup lives, I had this app and it was a, a proximity dating app. 
I started, my younger brother and I were doing it. He didn't have a lot of experience in this world. He was working a, you know, for this giant company. I was working at an agency. So agency life, you're working you know, 60, 70 hour weeks are, are pretty normal and you're traveling all the time. So trying to do a startup is, is tough. So we outsourced development to someone in our network in California who then outsourced it to Ukraine. And so the same exact thing happened to us. So we had this idea and we're like, this is great. They put this app together. And we're like, this is nothing like our wireframes. Like, this has nothing to do with what we thought we were getting. And we paid all this money. So we took it around and you know, the feedback was you know, proximity, dating is really weird. We took it to OU in Miami. And the feedback was like, hey, you guys, I don't know if I want people to know where I am if I'm in a dating app. And a year later, uh, you know, Tinder comes out just explodes and we all know the growth there and the, the valuations and again similar thing but we're like you know what it's execution like we didn't execute we we stopped as soon as we ran into issues and we we had set a budget we said we're going to spend this much money on this thing for development and marketing and we spent the entire budget on development it wasn't what we wanted and and you know we quit and we let it go and then you look back years later you're like oh my gosh you know now would we have executed the same way who knows you know could we ever have been that Probably not, but it is exact same thing. You're like, gosh, it'd be cool to be a billionaire already. That'd be fun. <laughs> yeah, it wouldn't hurt. Yeah, I could think of a couple of things I could do with a billion tender dollars right about now. Yeah, <laughs> seriously. But uh, yeah, it seems like a good place to kind of pivot and uh, want to talk a little bit about advice for our listeners. So a lot of our listeners out there, entrepreneurs, young professionals, ages 19 to 35. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have anything you'd suggest for them or any advice you'd give them about what they should do in their careers or kind of where they need to go? Yeah, you know, I, I think as far as careers go and, and what you're doing, you need to be getting something out of your career at, at any time. So if you're going in every day and you're working for the dollars, you're just working to take home and to go you know, do whatever you do after your work, you're not getting enough out of it. I don't care what you do. I think you can make your job work for you. And, and really evolve yourself and your knowledge through whatever you're doing. I don't care if you're sweeping floors or if you're the CEO of a, of a company, you should be pushing your job to make you learn more and further yourself. Definitely. And, and then kind of like the last question we always like to ask, it focuses around our theme on the podcast here, uh, which is live uncomfortably. Uh, without telling you too much more than that, what do you think of the phrase and how does it apply to your life? Yeah. I, I mean, as an entrepreneur, you're always living uncomfortably. So there's a lot of balancing, you know, in, in this life. And it gets much harder when you're the, you know, the buck stops with you. And my title CEO, and that's, uh, it's a small team. So it's a big title for a little team. But everything is my responsibility at the end of the day. So if something goes wrong, it's on me. If we have success, it's on the team. But that that's got to make you uncomfortable, you know, and, and for me, it's, it's managing that discomfort. And you do that through really putting everything in context. So not letting the little things get in front of you, you know, get in the way and, you know, having that vision and really being passionate about sticking to it. We know where we're going. We know what we want to do. And we know that there's going to be some pain to get there. And if there wasn't, it probably wouldn't be worth doing. Definitely. And Chris, thanks a lot. I think that's a great place to wrap up the show. Conquerors, thanks for listening. That's Chris Sense, CEO of F13 Works, with a lot of great advice on being an entrepreneur and a young professional and his story. We appreciate you guys listening. We'll talk to you next week. If you guys enjoyed that episode, 
Check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, as well as iTunes, Pocket Cast, Stitchers, whatever your favorite podcast app is. And go ahead and click that subscribe button. It'll make sure you never miss another episode of Conquering Columbus. Before we let you go, we want to take one last moment to say thanks to all of our incredible sponsors one more time. Conquering Columbus is brought to you in part by the Sundown Group. The Sundown Group is an Ohio-based nonprofit that helps connect entrepreneurs to investors, mentors, talent, and capital through business pitch events, workshops, and classes offered throughout the state. And for more information, head on over to sundownfirst.org. And our last sponsor is Facilities Management Express, or FMX for short. FMX is actually founded and headquartered here in Columbus, Ohio. They're a startup software company. What's really cool about them, there's a lot of competitors in this space, but they made a name for themselves by designing an easy-to-use and tailored-fit facilities maintenance and management software. They serve industries ranging from churches and schools to property management, manufacturing, and fast casual restaurants. You can learn more or check out a free trial at gofmx.com. You can drop me anywhere on the planet in any environment and I might get you know my head kicked in in the beginning but I'll find a way to survive I'll find a way to get the job done yeah there's a little doubt but you know what once again I think of that guy in my ear I think about stepping up to the stage I think about the challenge like I've lost sometimes but I've won more than I've lost and so like I bet on me any day choosing greatness greatness doesn't choose you you know you have to choose it and yeah, it's I think there was a hunger in me. There was a desire just to make a difference. There was a desire to not just be status quo, a desire to not be average. This is Conquering Columbus.